My guest today is Dr. Richard Rangam. Dr. Richard Rangam is a professor of biological anthropology at Harvard University and is the founder of Kabale Chimpanzee Project. Dr. Richard Rangam has conducted extensive research on primate ecology, nutrition, and social behavior. He is the author of best-selling book Catching Fire. How Cooking Made Us Human. In this book, Dr. Rangam discusses the role of cooking in human evolution. Dr. Richard Rangam is with me on the phone line. Uh, Richard, thank you very much for taking my call and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Richard, before we discuss the role of cooking food uh, in human evolution, uh, please tell us about yourself, about your education and about your research interests. Um, my goodness. Well, I, um, I studied zoology as an undergraduate at Oxford University in UK. And um, I, after that, I uh, wondered what I should do. And I wrote to Jane Goodall. Uh, who had at that point been studying chimpanzees in Gombe National Park in Tanzania for 10 years. And uh, she uh, invited me to come as a research assistant. And I spent one year uh, watching chimpanzees and entranced by uh, the uh, fascination of their behavior because I'd previously worked with antelope a little bit. And once you work with chimpanzees, you realize that you're studying a species that is uh, cognitively far more interesting uh, than an antelope. And I then uh, was able to do a, a PhD uh, on chimpanzee behavior, studying uh, their feeding behavior and how it affected their social behavior. And after that, I, I had a career uh, in um, uh, universities uh, studying uh, people a little bit. Uh, I, I worked with uh, pygmies in northeastern Congo. Um, I studied monkeys, uh, vervet monkeys in Kenya and gelato baboons in Ethiopia. But in 1987, as you mentioned, um, I started a study of chimpanzees, which continues to this day. So uh, that is now uh, just over 30 years old. And um, it's become a, a wonderful uh, source for all sorts of uh, information because we had a great team who uh, have been able to collect very systematic behavioral, physiological, ecological data uh, for decades. So it's been um, a, a career focused on chimpanzees, but the way that it seems to me so interesting to think about them is as a comparison to humans. And the the comparison is sometimes what makes us or what is similar about chimpanzees and humans, and sometimes it's about what is different. And of course, one of the great things that seems different uh, is, is the way that we prepare our food and they don't, which took me into the, the topics of interest in Catching Fire. Uh, in your book, Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human, you present the cooking hypothesis that cooking food was an essential element in the evolution of human beings. Please describe for our listeners the cooking hypothesis. Well, I, the reason that I started thinking about this was because I was studying chimpanzees and sometimes would try and eat uh, everything that they ate. 
right? and I would take no food with me from dawn till dusk. I would only eat chimpanzee foods. And what I discovered is that I could not survive on eating them. I, I would lose weight very quickly. I would just be extremely hungry. And it slowly dawned on me that uh, humans are uh, apparently incapable of uh, relying on uh, raw, wild food. And the reason is that we just don't have the digestive capacity for it. So the cooking hypothesis is it takes the fact that humans are uh, currently incapable of uh, living off raw, wild food, and it says uh, that maybe the way in which humans became human was that we learned to be able to cook our food, and once we cooked our food, that, in, that use of cooked food gave us a whole series of new adaptations, uh, physiological, uh, behavioral, uh, even uh, anatomical. And, and the, the, the story by uh, the cooking hypothesis uh, is that that seems to be right, that uh, there is something about humans that means that we are absolutely biologically committed to eating our food cooked in a way that is not true for any other animal, and that that process made us human. You suggest that Homo erectus emerged about two million years ago as a result of this unique characteristic, uh, this unique activity of cooking food. However, does the evidence support that our ancestors started cooking food and controlling fire that long ago? When I got into this uh, area of study, uh, the standard story was that uh, the time when humans started cooking was maybe one quarter of a million years ago, 250,000 years ago, that sort of thing. Um, because that's when the archaeology was uh, <clears throat> first giving really confident uh, indications. The cooking hypothesis makes a prediction, and the prediction is that as people know the, the archaeology better and better, they will find that... Uh, that humans have been using fire uh, for longer and longer in the, in the past, and I think that it will go to two million years ago. Uh, you ask, do we have that evidence yet? The answer is no, we don't. But what has happened during the time uh, of the last uh, 20 years or so when I've been uh, studying this is that the time when humans have been dis uh, found or human ancestors have been found to use fire, has been pushed back. So uh, the most conservative people now say it's at least 400,000 years ago. Uh, there's a very good site in Israel uh, at 800,000 years ago. There is uh, a really uh, intriguing site in South Africa called Wunderwerk, where a million years ago it seems people must have been using fire. And then there's half a dozen different sites uh, between uh, 1 million years ago and 1.8 million years ago where there is evidence that some people think is pretty strong and others say, well, it's not strong enough. So the answer to your question is we don't have convincing evidence yet for uh, fire being controlled at 2 million years ago. But... Um, 
the broader pattern is that people are pushing back the time when fire was used. So uh, it's still possible that we will find that uh, even in the last next decade or so, uh, pushing back to the time of Homo erectus. Two main points that you suggest in your book uh, are that cooking food led to the evolutionary shift to smaller uh, guts, smaller digestive system and larger brain. Uh, talk to us about this evolutionary shift and if there are other changes that happen uh, in Homo erectus's physiology. Talk to us about that. Okay, well, um, the the reason that cooking is so important from the point of view of uh, its effect uh, evolutionarily is that what it does is it makes your food easier to digest from the point of view of the work that the body has to do and it gives you uh, a higher gain of calories. It gives you uh, an increased proportion of the food nutrients are able to be digested um, the increase is, is still not well known. It's going to depend on different foods, but it could be a minimum 30%. Um, it could be more like 50% increase. It could be more like 80% increase. We still don't have a really good sense of this, amazingly, even though cooking is so important for our species. And so uh, the fact that cooking increases the digestibility of the diet and it softens the diet means that it is much easier for an organism, such as humans, uh, to be able uh, to, uh, to eat a cooked food diet than a raw food diet. And what that means is that the guts can be smaller. Now, uh, attempts to reconstruct the gut of uh, our ancestors have generally led to the conclusion that uh, the current gut size that we have was uh, similar uh, to our uh, ancestors all the way back to Homo erectus. And that's basically why I think Homo erectus was the key species. And then prior to that, we had much bigger guts, more like those of a gorilla or a chimpanzee, uh, where the rib cage flares outwards uh, and uh, it enables the body to, uh, to have uh, a large gut that makes you look sort of quite swollen and fat and pregnant um, um, all the time, basically, and certainly when you've uh, got a lot of food in your belly. So, uh, so I can't remember exactly how you framed the question, but uh, what we see is evidence for a great reduction in the size of the gut uh, at two million years ago compared to earlier. And was there any impact on the brain size? Oh, well, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so at, at the same time, what you see is uh, the start of an increase in the size of the brain. Now, in um, the metabolism of humans, the fact that we have a small gut uh, is um, significant because it reduces the total amount of metabolic energy that we commit to maintaining the gut. And uh, the fact that we have a large brain is significant because the brain is extremely hungry for sugar, for energy. Um, it, uh, in fact, the, the brain uses 
something around uh, a quarter of all of the energy that we eat. Uh, so people have tied the increase in the energetic demand from our big brains with the decrease in our energetic demand from our small guts. And when you look at all of the other organs in the body, you find that no other uh, reduction in organ uh, size in humans is significant compared to the reduction in organ size of the guts, suggesting that the reduction in the size of the gut that was resulting or was made possible by having cooked food because it was more digestible, that that made possible uh, the larger brain because it freed energy to be able to put, put into uh, keeping the brain uh, supplied with energy. I believe there is evidence that uh, suggests that uh, there were some other changes in the physiology of our ancestors, uh, such as a smaller jaw. Yes, indeed. Uh, so um, uh, humans had the biggest reduction in the size of their teeth in relationship to uh, their um, body size uh, at the time of the evolution of Homo erectus which is clearly um, likely to result from uh, the pressures on chewing being reduced uh, by the fact that um, the food was cooked and was therefore softer. And uh, as you say, the jaw was also become smaller, so you've got smaller jaws, smaller teeth, and then um, people have drawn attention to the fact that the jaw muscles became uh, smaller at the same time indicating that the strength needed to chew the food was, was reduced. And what is, I think, significant about all this is that um, this was the, not only was this the time when uh, it, was, it happened very prominently, but there is no other time in later human evolution when you can see the same sort of changes. So there is no time between now and two million years ago when you had reduction in the jaw size and the tooth size and the jaw muscle size in the same way, which means that uh, it's difficult to see how it is that cooking could have come in later with its huge effects on digestibility and the softness of the food because it should have had big effects whenever it came in. So, uh, to maintain a smaller digestive system and to provide energy to a large brain, uh, you briefly mentioned this, the food preparation should have two important features. The food should have high digestibility and the food should have high energy content. Now, do we have evidence that informs us that cooking food achieves these two objectives? Uh, that is a great question because if you had asked it 25 years ago or 30 years ago, uh, to a large extent, the answer would have been, no, we don't have the evidence. And I've been astonished by the fact that uh, this absolutely critical feature of how we prepare our food has been given so little attention by nutritionists. Anyway, the answer now is that we do have the evidence. Um, so the digestibility means the proportion of the food that is digested as opposed to being passed through the gut without being digested. And um, particularly for starch-rich foods, um, we have, we have a, a very 
uh, clear answer on this. Now, there's a complication. So when, in 1999, uh, my colleagues and I published a paper uh, proposing the cooking hypothesis, and a very important uh, nutritional ecologist said, you know, I think you're wrong. And the reason that she said that we were wrong is because if you feed raw starch to a human and then look in um, the feces that uh, they pass out, you will find no raw starch grains left. So she said, obviously, they must have been used in the gut. Uh, and therefore, uh, the amount of energy that people were getting out of it must have been the same, whether it was raw or cooked. Now, that view, um, it, it took some investigation to challenge it. And the reason it t seems to be wrong is that you have to think of the gut as composed of two parts. One is the small intestine, and the other is the large intestine. Um, and uh, it has now been come clear that, uh, that the amount of starch that reaches the large intestine is a critical feature uh, determining how well it is digested. The better digestion happens in the small intestine. And if you cook starch, then all of it is digested uh, in the small intestine, the part that comes from the stomach to the large intestine. If you leave it raw, then a lot of it gets into the large intestine. About 50% of it passes through the small intestine undigested, and it gets into the large intestine. What is significant about that? The problem is that in the large intestine, instead of digestion being responsible for releasing the nutrients, instead it is fermentation by bacteria. So in the large intestine, in your colon, uh, the food that gets there is um, broken down by the action of uh, your, um, your millions of bacteria that share your, your large intestine with you. And in doing so, they take roughly half of the energy. So, so the impact of cooking is to reduce the amount of energy that is taken by the bacteria. And once we understood that, uh, then it became clear that uh, for starchy foods, but in, for foods in general, the effect of cooking is to give the nutrients that are digested 100% to your body as opposed to many of them being fermented and shared with the bacteria. So that really answers, I think, both questions. You know, that both the uh, cooking increases the digestibility and uh, it leads to an increased amount of, of energy. Is the effect of cooking on different type of foods uh, uh, same? Uh, for instance, uh, cooking uh, plants and vegetables are cooking uh, animal uh, fat, protein, uh, like meat? Uh, undoubtedly, there are different kinds of effects uh, on uh, different uh, foods. Um, and one way to break down those uh, different foods is to talk about um, ca carbohydrates and protein and fats, in other words, the macronutrients. And another way to break it down is to talk about the, the actual foods you eat, like um, uh, starchy roots or protein-rich meats 
uh, or fat-rich uh, things like, uh, I don't know, chocolate or, or cheese. Um, and uh, either way, uh, certainly cooking has different effects. I think what is very interesting is that uh, there are, you can either think of this as having effects on the chemistry or on the physics. Uh, so if you think about cooking's effects on carbohydrates or protein or fats, you're thinking just about the chemistry. If you're thinking about the foods, you're thinking about the physics. And uh, I draw attention to the physics because on the whole, people don't pay much attention to this when they think about uh, cooking and its effects on uh, digestibility because uh, we're so attracted by the biochemical sciences. But in fact, uh, whether or not the food comes as a chunk of meat as opposed to, uh, I don't know, um, uh, a protein um, juice uh, where, where things have been um, mixed up and, and uh, swallowed as a liquid. This has huge effects from the point of view of the body because if the body has to do the work to break down a chunk of meat into a... Um, uh, essentially a liquid mush, then that costs the body energy. It costs it in terms of producing acid that is breaking down the, um, the proteins. It uh, costs it in terms of the muscular churning that is done by the stomach. Uh, there are maybe 20 different processes that contribute to these costs. And so as we learn more and more about the impact of cooking uh, on uh, the foods that we eat and the energy that is going to be released. We have to think both about the physical consequences of, um, of digestion and the biochemical ones. And cooking softens meat, for instance, uh, and makes it easier for the body to, uh, to digest in terms of them, the body having to do less energetic work. And the less energetic work that the body has to do, then the greater the net energy gain that the body gets from the food. So the short answer to your question is these different foods, uh, the uh, impact of cooking are certainly very different depending on the physical state and depending on the chemical state. And we're still at a very early stage of being able to characterize the differences. And this is important because when people are trying to design a diet for themselves, they want to know what is the effect of eating raw or versus cooked. And at the moment, a lot of it is guesswork. Uh, this leads us to my next question. There is a view that consuming raw food is good for us. Uh, what is uh, your take on that? Um, my answer to that question of whether or not raw food is good for you is it depends on uh, who you are. Uh, and so if you are a, uh, a starving peasant in Ethiopia, then raw food is terrible for you because what you want to do is to maximize the amount of energy you get from your food. And uh, it is absolutely vital to cook your food uh, to the point where you can uh, get maximal energy out of it. If you are an overweight um, individual in uh, urban America or Europe um, who is looking to lose weight, then raw food is terrific for you because uh, I think it is hard to imagine a better weight loss regime than eating your food raw. And the reason I say that 
is that uh, raw food tends to have particularly uh, good concentrations of micronutrients. Uh, most micronutrients tend to be uh, partially destroyed by cooking. Uh, not all. Uh, there, are, there are some uh, in which the concentration is actually increased by cooking. But overall, the uh, vitamin and mineral concentration is going to be higher from eating raw foods. So if your main task in life is to think about controlling your calorie intake, raw food is terrific. Uh, it is not a good idea if you are an infant or a child because uh, that can actually lead to them starving. And in fact, there are cases in which it seems that um, people, uh, out of uh, all of the best motives, trying to bring their kids up in the best possible way, uh, mislead themselves into thinking that raw food is a good diet for, for an infant, and the infant has died. And it looks as though that is the result of them starving. So I think it ought to be illegal to allow a child to be brought up on raw food. It seems extremely dangerous. Um, but if you're an adult uh, desperate to, to shed a few pounds, then this is a great way to do it. You mentioned calories few moments ago. Uh, we use calories to measure the energy that food contains. Uh, you suggest that using calories is not a good way to describe how much energy food brings to our bodies. Talk to us about that. Yes, uh, you know, so we're used to using calories and it's a very um, helpful measure to start with. Uh, because it's an entirely standard thing which you can uh, replicate uh, scientifically. And the way that food um, calories have been assessed typically um, has been ultimately blowing them up in a bomb calorimeter. Uh, th this is a sort of shorthand way of characterizing this, and it's a slightly cartoon version, but that's basically what it comes down to, that um, the way that people have been able to calculate the calorie value of a whole series of foods, such as the 7,000 foods that are listed in the uh, United States Department of Agriculture website. Um, it, it's basically what they've done uh, is to assess uh, the um, amount of heat given off when uh, those foods burn. Well, uh, my colleagues and I have drawn attention to the fact, as have many other nutritionists, I should say, that uh, this is an unrealistic way of assessing the real value of uh, food to a human eater. And the reason is that foods vary in how much work our body has to do, how many calories our body has to spend in order to digest the food. And if it's raw, then uh, the food is worth relatively less compared to the supposed calorie value than if it's cooked. So I think that in the long run, you know, it'd be wonderful if we could come up with some kind of food labeling system that recognizes that the calorie value that you get from basically burning the food should be modified by uh, how much difficulty the body has in doing the digestion. And so you could have something like a, um, a traffic light system, uh, a green, uh, amber, and red, to say 
uh, if the food has a green mark on it in the supermarket, then that means that the calorie value is accurate uh, because it's so easy to digest that uh, you will get almost a whole calorie value. And if it's got a red, it might say you will actually only get 50% of the calories uh, in this because your body is going to work so hard to digest it, and amber will be somewhere in between. Some system like that for telling the consumer that the calorie value as measured in the ordinary way uh, that all of the um, food products have at the moment uh, is uh, giving us a false reading whenever the food is difficult to digest. In your presentations, you have discussed a few experiments that are being conducted on animals where animals are fed cooked food. What kind of observations uh, we are making from these experiments? Well, uh, animals are very important um, models for understanding what's going on with humans. And the basic process of digestion is very similar. Uh, animals, uh, all animals we find, prefer their food cooked. I'm sure there must be some exception to that, but uh, the ones that we know about um, whether they're wild, like um, uh, the apes, chimpanzees, and orangutans, and so on, uh, or whether they're domestic, like, like dogs and, and cats. Um, if you give them a choice between cooked food and raw food, they prefer their food cooked. And so just like humans, what is happening is that uh, they are recognizing that the food is, is uh, going to be uh, better for them in the sense of producing more energy because animals always want to get more energy. And the detailed studies in laboratories enable us to assess uh, where the energetic gains are coming from. And there are really uh, two main sources. And one of them uh, is the one I've described as being the increase in digestibility. And the other is, uh, I've also described it a little bit, uh, it's the reduction in the amount of work that the body has to do uh, to digest the food. And um, in, uh, we, one of our earliest experiments was to look at this in snakes, because snakes are rather easy animals to, to test on this because they lie around and do nothing but digesting their food once you give them a meal. And so we were able to uh, see how much carbon dioxide was produced, how much oxygen they were using uh, in a laboratory uh, after they'd had a meal. And we were able to show that uh, there was an increase of 25% of, of uh, the calorie value uh, of the meat that they were eating when it was cooked, and that half of that increase came from increased digestibility, and half of it came from a reduced amount of work that they, the bodies were doing. We, we've done similar sort of work with um, rodents, with uh, rats and mice, and uh, you get slightly different numbers. Um, but the principle is that you've got these two ways in which uh, eating your food cooked uh, will affect the total amount of energy you get out of it and uh, the amount... Uh, the specific numbers will vary by the foods themselves and by the species and by the uh, way in which you prepare the food by cooking. So there's a lot of variation, but the two always apply. The uh, cooking increases 
the proportion of the food that is actually digested and it reduces the amount of work that you have to spend uh, in your gut uh, digesting the food. Uh, you point out in your presentations that the impact of cooking on our evolution is usually ignored by researchers. Why is this so? Uh, do you have a view on this? Well, I think that one of the reasons that people have paid rather little attention to the notion that cooking has affected our evolution a lot is the hidden assumption, or normally hidden assumption, that that humans actually are perfectly capable of eating their food raw. And until recently, I mean, it took our team to point out that this is wrong. So uh, many people have, have written uh, as if humans are a, capable of eating just like any other animal. Uh, and in fact, uh, the famous uh, French anthropologist, Claude Lévi-Strauss, uh, who died at the age of uh, over 100 uh, about 10 years ago. Um, he, he wrote a book called The Raw and the Cooked, which was a very big contribution to anthropology, in which he said, the reason that humans cook their food is purely for symbolic reasons. It's purely to show that we are uh, different from other animals. And what was so striking about this, uh, it, this was written in the 1960s, and nobody ever said, you know, I think that's wrong. Nobody ever said that's nonsense because humans actually need to eat their food cooked. Now, why wouldn't they say that? Well, I think the reason is that people uh, observe that almost everything we eat can be eaten raw. You know, we can, we can eat cabbage raw if we want. We can eat meat like steak tartare raw if we want. We can eat eggs raw if we want. Um, they may, may not find them so delicious, but we can do them. And there are such people as raw foodists, um, people who, for one philosophical reason or another, uh, have committed themselves to eating their food raw. And I think that people didn't recognize that the uh, consequence of eating your food raw is extremely difficult for the physiology of the body. Uh, the people who are raw foodists uh, long term are very hungry for much of the time uh, and uh, they uh, live only in areas where they can get specific kinds of raw foods. Uh, those that have relatively high digestibility and that uh, are available all year round. And even so, those people are extremely thin. It took uh, a new kind of thinking to recognize that humans are different from other animals and that we, we cannot survive, notice I said on raw food in the wild, you know, we can survive on raw food from a supermarket if we are getting our uh, good foods from uh, highly productive areas uh, all year. But in the wild, uh, that's not possible. And animals eat their food wild uh, and raw, of course, all the time. We are just different in that respect. So it took some time for people to realize that humans are different because you know, humans can eat their food raw. It's just that if you try and rely on it, then you get into trouble. An interesting question uh, that arises here is, what makes us human? Many animals are 
very similar to us, but we are different. We build spaceships, we build complex machines. What makes us different? What makes us human? Well, obviously, the, the size of the human brain, uh, it powers our intelligence. I'm not suggesting that our intelligence is the only reason uh, why we are so extraordinarily successful at cooperating in um, building uh, uh, machines uh, uh, and constructing all sorts of other things that depend on uh, transmitted culture, but it's obviously a very important part of it. And uh, so we've been talking about the energetic gains of cooking and about the fact that um, that the acquisition of the cooking habit um, could allow uh, more energy to be devoted to the brains. So I do think that one of the major reasons why humans are different from other animals is that we are the ones that have somehow externalized the process of digestion and as a consequence have had uh, access to much greater amounts of easily digestible energy leading us to get away from the constraints on brain size that apply to every other animal not literally just brain size, but also the, the density of neurons in the brain. So to me, that, that is the, you know, the key. And then after that, um, I think that another very important feature is that uh, humans have undergone a process in which we reduced the extent to which we were spontaneously aggressive to each other. If you look back in the human ancestral past, uh, once you go back past about 200,000 years ago, you get uh, into humans. You know, we were looking like humans. We were Homo erectus and Homo heidelbergensis and so on. But uh, we were different because we had these immense faces, great broad faces and heavy brow ridges above the eyes. Uh, features that in other animals are associated with relative aggressiveness. And it seems to me that it's very likely that, that we were far more aggressive um, in those eras and that a reduction in aggressiveness in the last few hundred thousand years has greatly contributed to our ability to cooperate with each other and therefore to uh, be more constructive uh, in creating um, so much of the culture uh, that powers uh, human advances. So that could uh, be in you know, making better weapons uh, or uh, coming together to um, uh, to make, uh, I don't know, boats later or, or sleds, um, things that enable us to uh, deal with the, the harsh environment very much better. So my answer is uh, both... Uh, the energy that comes from cooking and the cooperative ability that comes from a reduction of aggression. What are various research topics and questions that you and your team are working on these days? And what kind of findings may come out of uh, these research uh, activities? Well, with regard to cooking, I am uh, really hoping that we can make some breakthroughs with regard to uh, the archaeology. And I, I've been uh, having correspondence with uh, some people around the world who are um, uh, finding uh, evidence that could, could take us all the way back 
to uh, uh, to almost two million years in terms of uh, uh, finding evidence for the control of fire. And I think that's important because uh, very naturally uh, there is uh, a lot of reluctance uh, from some people to accept what seems to me very good biological evidence uh, because they are worried that um, the prediction of finding evidence of fire uh, earlier has not yet been met. And uh, I think in order to understand who we are and how our physiological adaptations to um, the control of fire, it'll be wonderful if we can shore that up with the archaeological evidence. Um, with regard to uh, my own interest nowadays, um, I just mentioned about the reduction of aggression, and I'm fascinated by the notion that uh, humans have been through a period of uh, selection against aggressiveness uh, at the interpersonal level, um, the kind of aggression that involves losing your temper and flailing out at people who annoy you. It's called reactive aggression. I think what this means is that humans have um, uh, gone, undergone selection against it for the last uh, 300,000 years or more uh, in a process of self-domestication. And what is exciting about that is that we have all sorts of models in domesticated animals for uh, the consequences of domestication. Those consequences include not just behavior and physiology and cognition and anatomy, things that, that uh, we can see echoed in humans, but also in the genes. And that means that we have uh, the capacity for looking at the genes of humans and the genes of other animals to see uh, what is responsible for the fact that humans have got this wonderfully tolerant, benign, cooperative attitude towards each other in face-to-face uh, -face interactions on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that understanding that um, that evolutionary pattern will give us a whole new insight into uh, what makes humans human. Uh, Dr. Richard Rangam, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Well, thanks, thanks for your beautiful preparation. Uh, and uh, you, know, you obviously had really read, read uh, the material, so it's, it's great to talk to you. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you for your great question. It was really fun to talk to you. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks a lot, Wasim. Okay. Great. Bye-bye.